KMTT, Kimitzion Teitzei Torah. We're listening to the Erev Shabbat program. Erev Shabbat Kodesh, Parashat Tetzaveh, Parashat Zachor, Yud Bet Adar. The Erev Shabbat program is Lilui Nishmat Shlomo Yosef and Chaim Shmuel, and I am your host, Jonathan Snowbell. We have uh, spoken over the last couple of years about something that uh, is at the very, very base of our human existence, of our Jewish existence, regarding Purim. And that has been around the phrase, the famous phrase, One is obligated to drink until they do not know the difference between the accursed Haman and the blessed Mordechai. And what we've explained in a nutshell over the years, because I want to take it a different level this year, is that even in the place where Am Yisrael doesn't retain its quality as doesn't retain its qualities as the Jewish people they're not at their best perhaps they're at their worst and this we explain the Jewish people in Shushan are the Jewish people who have not returned to Eretz Yisrael during Shivat Zion, during to the return to Zion. They are the people who perhaps have assimilated to a large extent, who are attending a Chashverosh's party in which the Kelim, Mikelim, Shonim are used, the Kelim of the Beit HaMikdash, they're being used, they're attending the party. The Jewish people are far away from God, in every sense of the word. And Dafka here, and even here, God sends them a salvation. And we explain that what this says to us, and this is the the, the reason for the, the great joy on Purim, is that even in a far, far, far away situation, there is a relationship with God. And this is the meaning of that mitzvah, to become inebriated, and here the idea is more important than the performance, but even in a state where a person is so far away from what he's supposed to be, it's bad to be drunk. A a person who is drunk is hardly a human being, there's hardly a difference between him and an animal. And yet there's something, at the end of the day, that this person is a human being, this person is a Jew, the Jewish people, no matter how far away they are from God, are still the Jewish people, and therefore there is a relationship with God, and that relationship can be rekindled and can bring salvation even in the deepest, darkest moments. That was what we've said in the past in a nutshell, and here I want to take it to a different level. Because I believe there is another level here. And that's the level of 
man's actions and the significance of man's actions and the ability of man's actions in those deep and dark times to make the difference, to help man climb out of the pit that they are in and to rekindle that relationship by taking action on their own. Taking action with God looking over our shoulder, but ultimately man taking action. And from here I want to begin somewhere far out, far away from the Megillah, and it is our first encounter with Amalek. The first encounter with Amalek, there's two points that I want to point to that are interesting. One of them is a small detail, and one of them is a larger detail. The war with Amalek is brought at the end of Parshat B'Shalach. We're going to read this Purim morning in the shul. And I think what's shocking about it when we compare it to everything surrounding it is the lack of a miracle in the miraculous sense that we're used to in the book of Shemot, in the book of Exodus. What does that mean? If I just look up one paragraph, we see Moshe hitting the rock and water coming out from it. If I look above that one more paragraph, we're going to see the man, man falling down from heaven and feeding the Jewish people. If I go beyond that, we're going to see throwing a tree into the water to create drinkable water. And if I go above that, I'm going to see Kriyat Yamsu, the splitting of the sea. In other words, ah, and let's go past that. If I go past that, we'll go into Parsha Yitro. And the first Parsha is not so good. We're going to see Matan Torah, God revealing Himself in all His glory on Har Sinai. In that sense, when a Tholek Amalek comes, within this context of God doing miracles, and God is full of miracles in the Midbar, and He's constantly solving our problems, with his miracles. We didn't fight the Egyptians in Yamsuf. God fought them. We didn't find a solution for our bread. We didn't find a solution for our water. There was a miraculous action which could not have been brought about, brought about by man's actions. And in that scheme of things, Amalek is different. And here I want to point out one more point, and that is Yehoshua. There's two points to point out about Yehoshua. One is, Vayomar Moshe el Yehoshua becharlanu anashim. Moshe says to Yehoshua, choose people, v'tzei lachem Amalek, and go fight Amalek. Who is Yehoshua? This is the first time we are introduced to the figure Yehoshua. But who is he? He's not Yehoshua Binun. We don't know anything about his ancestry, as he is mentioned so many more times in the Torah afterwards, as Yehoshua Binun. Here he's, he's Yehoshua, you know, the guy we know, Yehoshua. Number two, usually we're calling him Yehoshua Binun, Mishra'at Moshe. At least the first time 
we would expect a little bit of introduction to who this person is, but no, it's Yoshua. And point number two is this what we said earlier. Why is Yoshua? Why Yoshua? I'm going to be on the top of the hill. I'm going to be far away from the mountain. And though Moshe's involvement here is very felt, he is, as Chazal understand, in prayer. But in the front, is there's going to be a war, a battle. Yoshua is going to take his men, and they're going to fight Amalek, and Vayachaloshi Yoshua Amalek Yoshua, he is the one who weakens and defeats Amalek in the battle with their swords. Swords. Swords is a human tool to fight in war. There is no splitting of the ground underneath the people of Amalek, which is fitting to say for Shemot. It is Yoshua. Yoshua, who is going to fight the wars in Eretz Yisrael, he is going to fight the war against Amalek. Moshe is going to be in the background. Al Rosh HaGiva. This parasha is almost quantum leaped from a different time. This should be a battle that we fight in Eretz Yisrael against Amalek, one of the three mitzvot that the Ramam writes that we have when we go into Eretz Yisrael is to fight Amalek. Three mitzvot being having a, choosing a king, building the Beit HaMikdash, and fighting Amalek. And somehow this is quantum leaped out of its place and brought here. And in that sense, Yehoshua is not identified because it's Yehoshua from the future who is fighting Amalek. It's the Yoshua that we know already, that the Torah feels no need to introduce to us. Because really this parasha should be, well, maybe in Sefer Yoshua, maybe later on in Sefer Dvarim, when Yoshua is a known character to us. And that's, I think, perhaps what the Torah is alluding to here. That it's a parasha in which Yoshua should have already been well known, and there is no need for introduction. It's the world of Eretz Yisrael in which we go out and fight on our own. It's the world of Eretz Yisrael where there's no more man from the skies, where we have to work the land and find food for ourselves and make food for ourselves. It's the world of Eretz Yisrael where we take seven years to capture the land. Things don't go quickly with open miracles, though there were some miracles, and that's an important point to make. But in the larger scheme of things, the battles happened stage by stage. in a human manner, clearly with God overlooking. And this is sort of what Moshe is developing here. Is I'm going to be on Rosh HaGivah, I'm going to be on the hill over there, I'm going to be praying, but you, Yoshua, you're going to take care of this battle. Because this is your battle. My battles 
happen in one fell swoop. Moshe can can defeat the Egyptians. Moshe can defeat Sichon and Og. The east bank of the Jordan River can be captured in no time, where the west bank, between the Jordan River and the sea, takes seven years to capture. There's human progress, and there's progress that is expedited by God. And when it comes to Eretz Yisrael, we have to do things on our own. We have to achieve things on our own, in human time, with God's help, but with our own hands. God empowers us to fight and achieve on our own, to feed ourselves on our own, to defeat our enemies on our own, even with His help, but ultimately on our own. That is the battle here with Amalek. It's crucial that even though we are in the midst of Sefer Shemot, in the midst of Moshe's leadership, in the midst of the Hanagah Nisit, leadership through miracles, it is crucial that we quantum leap this battle to the future, take Yoshua, who we already know, the leader of the future, the leader in Eretz Yisrael, and have him fight a human battle with swords against Amalek. And God is overlooking, and Moshe is overlooking, and helping, but the battle is done in human terms. And this, of course, and since our time is limited, clearly takes us back to the Megillah, because the Megillah, if, if in the, this parasha of Amalek, one could still argue with me who is more dominant, Moshe or Yoshua. And again, I think the fact that Yoshua is introduced without an introduction and out of place, because here we're talking all these miracles, that, that is enough for us to weigh the scales in favor of Yoshua, because Moshe should have been leading this battle. And even though Moshe is involved, Yoshua's involvement is, is by, by the fact that he is involved, says, speaks volumes. But in the Megillah, there's no place to be confused, because God's name is not even mentioned in the Megillah. And though we are of, our, uh, of a firm belief that God is involved in every detail of the Megillah, everything is done in human terms. Human beings, despite the difficulty, are involved in changing the, the order in the king's court, Mordechai and Esther, and human beings pick up their swords and defend themselves against their enemies and defeat their enemies on the 13th and 14th of Adar, respectively. And this brings us to our next point, which is something that someone said to me in a two-minute drive yesterday, in the name of Rav Yol Binun, he spoke about the pasuk Al Kena Yudim Haprazim Ayoshuvim Barei Haprazot. It's a pasuk in Perak Tet of the Megillah. That those who read the, the the Megillah as a continuation realize that there's something very wrong with this pasuk, because the previous pasukim talk about the difference between Shushan and the rest of the 127 Medinot. 
that everybody else fought on the 13th and celebrated on the 14th, and Shushan fought on the 13th and the 14th and celebrated on the 15th. And then out of the blue, the Megillah says, Al-Kena Yehudim HaPrazim HaYoshim Ba'arei HaPrazot. The Jews sitting in the non-walled cities celebrate the 14th of Adar. And from this Pasuk, Chazal and Torah Shabbat Peh derive, as is logical to derive, that the people in walled cities will celebrate on the 15th. If the people in the non-walled cities are celebrating on the 14th, then the people on the 15th, on the, in the walled cities will be celebrating on the 15th. And this has absolutely no connection to the previous Pasuk. Al-Kain, therefore, because in Shushan they did this, so therefore... When you read the Megillah, you'll see that there's no connection between these two psukim. And Rav Yol Binun points out that the term prazim is a term from Eretz Yisrael. It's not a term that relates to paras. And this is an Eretz Yisrael influence. And this, of course, reminds us and rings in my ears of the famous Rambam, that the Rambam explains why on earth did they make this distinction between the walled cities and the non-walled cities, and the Rambam says, "Lasod zikaron be'Eretz Yisrael banes to make a reminder of Eretz Yisrael in this nace. And the need for such a reminder has always been, to a large extent, obvious on the level that Eretz Yisrael doesn't seem to be involved here at all. There's no mention of Eretz Yisrael kimat as a reminder in some of the words." What does this miracle have to do with Eretz Yisrael? Okay, so we'll make a memory for Eretz Yisrael. Alright. Alright, Eretz Yisrael is mentioned now. But there's something deeper here. And that is what we mentioned before. The Hanagah of Eretz Yisrael, the way things work in Eretz Yisrael as opposed to Chutz La'aretz. In Chutz La'aretz, there's Man, there's the Hanagah Elokit. And in Eretz Yisrael, Man is at the center. And when we say that there needs to be a memory of Eretz Yisrael in this nace, in this miracle, what we're saying is that this miracle happened, though it was in Shushan, on Eretz Yisrael terms, on Yoshua Binun terms, where man was involved. And man found the strength to bring upon, bring salvation with God's help, with God overlooking, but without God feeding him with a spoon. Here he is standing behind the walls, looking from the window, peeking from the crack. God is looking, God is watching, but it is man's action that is in the forefront. And man needs to take responsibility for himself, and God empowers man to take responsibility for himself. And therefore, there must be a memory in this miracle of Eretz Yisrael, because this is all about Eretz Yisrael. Where man takes the initiative, man takes the lead. And that is why the Chachamim in Eretz Yisrael are able to insert this Pasuk, Al-Kena Yehudim prazim because there needs to be an, uh, a memory of the miracle, there needs to be a reminder of Eretz Yisrael in the miracle. 
because this is a miracle. This battle against Amalek is a battle of Yoshua. It is a battle of the people of Eretz Yisrael. And yes, the Jews in Paras, the Jews in Shushan, were able to find the abilities, the strength from God to be empowered to use human tools to bring upon this miracle. And if we return to what we said at the beginning, then the miracle of Purim is not just that God saved us despite the vast distance that existed between us and Him at the time, but God saved us in a way that He empowered us to defeat Amalek and the forces that were out there to destroy us. And just as God gave Yoshua the ability to defeat Amalek, and God gave Mordechai and Esther and the Jews in the Persian Empire the ability to destroy Amalek, so too God should give us the ability to empower us to be able to defeat our enemies. Purim Sameach, Shabbat Shalom. This Shabbat we read Parshat HaTetzaveh. Parshat HaTetzaveh is full of mitzvot, but we've uh, dedicated this little uh, broadcast, this part of the broadcast, not to the uh, open mitzvot, not the Sefer mitzvot. The Rambam lists, uh, there are Tayag mitzvot, there are a number of mitzvot, many mitzvot which appear in Parshat HaTetzaveh. We've been trying to find the hidden mitzvot, the ones which aren't in the Tayag mitzvot, the ones which are not in the Sefer mitzvot. The Musahaskel, the suggestions, the advice, all the absolute chiyuvim which Chazal also learned from uh, from the Pasha. And that Pasha Tetzaveh, uh, it's more or less open mitzvot, which I don't think uh, it's, uh, we're going to do uh, these times, the, this 15 minutes is dedicated simply listing the mitzvot. You can see them in any list of mitzvot arranged by Pasha. Uh, looking around, so there is one thing which is listed as a chiyuv, and it's quoted by the Rambam as a chiyuv, and it's connected to, to the Pasha. Uh, the tzitz, the Pasha talks about the big day kuhuna, the garments that were worn by the Kohanim and the Kohen Gadol in Avodat Beit HaMikdash. Kohen Gadol wore a tzitz. Tzitz was a, a metal plate, a golden plate, it was worn on his forehead. And it said on it, Kodesh Lashem, had God's name on it. The Suk says, so it's worn on his forehead, along with it on his forehead. But then the Pasuk repeats it, it should be on his forehead always, it should be permanently on his forehead. In order to be the Ratzon, before, uh, for the Jews, before God. So the Gemara talks about, like, the Ratzon is understood to mean a kind of kapara, an atonement, or it, 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 it corrects. So what, what are the chataim, or what, what, what's the purpose of the tzitz? That's not a point, but the Gemara in Yomar, Davzayin, says the following. Vayal mitzchot tamid. It says, Vayal mitzchot. What's the Vayal mitzchot tamid? 
to be permanently on his on his forehead. The Gemara says Shelo Yasir Daato Mimenu. The Gemara says that this tells us that the Kohen Gadol has to not just wear the tzitz, but it should. First time it says it should be on his forehead. The second time, Vayam Mitzchot Tamid, it means it should be on his mind. There's a a. It's forbidden. He's prohibited from Hesech Hadat, from ignoring, from from moving his mind away. There's a certain measure. I wouldn't say thinking. It's not think about it all the time, but he has to be aware. Hesech Hadat is the opposite of awareness. There's a certain basic awareness which Bengadol has to maintain concerning the tzitz. That's just something you wear, but it's something that becomes part of your general state of awareness. Kohen Gadol walks with the name of God imprinted on his head, and therefore on his mind. And then the Gemara says, This statement, that the Kohen Gadol needs to be aware all the time of the tzitz, is, exhibits or reflects a different statement. Rabbi Huna says a person is required, chayav, is obligated, to to touch, to to feel with his fingers, his tefillin, might mean continually, you know, it couldn't possibly mean continuum, but it means very often, like every every shy, every couple of minutes, one should touch the tefillin. Kal mitzitz, and the makor, the source is the tzitz. Matzitz sheimbo ela askara achat, the tzitz which is worn in the same place as tefillin shalosh. I think it's talking about tefillin shalosh. The twin which is the tzitz which is worn on his forehead, on his head, and only has one mention of God's name. The Torah said that if you have the name of God, apparently this explanation that the Gemara gives to the Salacha, why does one need to have Hesachadat? That's it. It's not because of the metal, not because of the garment. Other garments you don't need to have uh, uh, awareness. But the Tzitz has the name of God on it. It says, Lashem. And if you have the name of God on your body, on your head, that obligates you to, to relate to it. Not to ignore it. You can't, you can't ignore, disregard, turn your mind away from the name of God which the Torah says should be on your head. As, therefore, if, but that's only one name of God. So Tfilin, which has many instances of the name of God in the Klaf in the text which is in the Tfilin. So surely one has to be aware, but you have to have Sachadat. And Rabbi Bahuna added a point which wasn't even found in the original Halakha. In order not to have Sachadat, so practically speaking, not mentally speaking, but physically speaking, Chayav Adam Mashmesh A person should touch his Tfilin in order to remind him, in order to draw his attention to his Tfilin. So a person every few minutes touches one Tfilin. Usually when you do that, you then give a little kiss. But it's not the kissing that's the mitzvah. It's the mental awareness that comes about, follows your fingers, so to speak, when your fingers reach out and simply touch the tefillin, the mashmesh bit tefillah. No place in the Gemara said that such halacha paitzitz, that the Kohen Gadol needs to touch the tzitz. There, it's the formulation of the Gemara is only on, directly on the, the mental awareness. Shelo yasir datomimeno. By tefillin it says, chayav dana mashmesh bit tefillah, and the reason is, 
אוסר שלא יסיח דתו ממנו. פרלי, פרטיקלי ספיקינג, כהן גדול, הוא פרסון not directed. I mean, more or less like tzitzit, you don't pay attention all the time. Tefillin, it's just something you, it's, it's part of your, part of your framework, and therefore it's necessary in order to make sure that you do not have hasachadat, that to be a, a physical accompaniment. Chayab adam lemashmesh betfila. This halacha is called lehalacha. In the Ramam, in the Shulchan Aruch, it's in the Ramam, perek down, mechot tefillin, chayab adam lemashmesh betfila, calls man shame alav. If you're wearing tefillin, you have to touch them. שלא יסיח דתו מהם אפילו רגע אחד. even for one second you should not have inattention, total inattention from the tefillin. שקדושתן גדולה מקדושת הציץ. Rav says that the Kalbachomer in the Gemara, one Askara, one name of God, many names of God, refers to the level of kedusha, the holiness, the sanctity of tefillin is greater than the sanctity of the tzitz. שהציץ אין בו אלא שם אחד, ואלו יש בהם אחד ועשרים שם של יוד קי ואף קי. בשלוש וחומותן בשל יד. רמב״ם קאונטד דה נומברס אוף אזכרות, אוף נאמס אוף גאד אין תפילין, אי סדר דס טוונטי וואן. אין בוט אוף דה, בוט תפילין של ראש אין תפילין של יד. תוספות סדר דס נאט אקשולי דיו לייטה. It's not actually derived from the Pasuk of Tzitz. Reasons obvious, I mean, you can think of other differences between the Tzitz and Tfilin. It's not an obvious Kal V'chomer, but it tells us it's only an Asmachta, but nonetheless it tells us what the idea is. I think what the Joshua is telling us is that there are two commands, one for Kohen Gadol and one for the Jew, to place God's name like in your brain, to imprint God's name on you. Now, it's done physically, on your head, or on your forehead, in the case of Tzitz, on your head, the top of your head, in the case of Tefillin. But Chazal understood that it's, it's not about wearing something. It's not about what you wear. It's because these things are not merely garments, but they're Devash Bikdusha. They have God's name in them. It sits, it's the whole content, and Tefillin, it's part of it. So, It's not that you should wear God's name, but that you should be aware that you should like, it should be burnt into your consciousness. And the real mitzvah is therefore not merely wearing, but also the consciousness. And if on tefillin, you have to draw your attention by, by practical application, by touching it. And the kiyum, the real application, is by drawing one's attention, by being conscious of tefillin. But again, what do I say? Being conscious of God's name. What does it mean to be conscious of God's name? sort of, it's a fulfillment of the Pasuk, obviously. Shiviti Hashem Negdi Tamid. Your whole attitude towards, towards life, towards moving, towards being in the world, is different if in front of you, the name of God, Shiviti Hashem Negdi Tamid. The name of God is like directly in front of me, and everything else is organized around it. But it has to be part of your 
day-to-day, minute-to-minute consciousness. And therefore, you have the Salacha of the Gemara and Yoma, the Mashmesh B'Tfilah, V'lo L'Hasiyach Mehem Dat. Because of the Salacha, that it's a Sul L'Hasiyach Dat Mehem Tfilah, that is one of the reasons, one of the two reasons why we don't do it Tfilah all day. The, the many of those, since it's very difficult, Lo L'Hasiyach Dat Mehem Tfilah, and you've got to work, you could be doing involved in A, B, and C, and D, at the same time, you're going to lose the awareness, the consciousness of the tefillin, because you get involved in whatever you're doing. And that's one of the two reasons. The other reason is gufnakit, tefillin has to be maintained in the body, which is kept at a very high level of cleanliness and, and devotion. And those two reasons together was the practical reason why, gradually speaking, tefillin was restricted more and more today, almost all people, only to the time of tefillat shacharit. While you're davening, talking to God, so it's much easier to maintain the non-hesachatat, to maintain the consciousness of the name of God in front of you because you're involved in Kodesh one way or the other. Um, but we don't wait to fill in all day, even though me, Dina, from the Pasuk, from Dina the Gemara, it's quite clear from the stories in the Gemara that the Chachamim, in fact, did wait to fill in. Many of them were to fill in all day long. Uh, from the morning until until the night. So the halacha of Hesachadat is a real halacha. It's not just a Jewish. It's a real halacha. And it's connected more or less in the Gemara. It seems to imply really connected. Tosu says that it's only an Asmachta. It's connected to this Pasuk, to this comparison to the Tzitzah Kodesh, which the Kohen Gadol wore on his um, on his on his part. That's the only uh, mitzvah I found in this week's Pasha, which is uh, which is appropriate for, uh, for the framework that we've set uh, for my appearance on Friday's Erev Shabbat program, um, which perhaps is really appropriate for this week's Parashat Tzaveh, since it is Erev Purim. And of course, we all know the Lord characterizes the Megillah from all other books in the Tanakh. And it's not merely a technical point, but it's essential. That God's name does not appear in the Megillah. The Megillah is about God's working in history, but God's hidden working in history. Not talking about Sefer Shemot, no Kriyat Yamsuf, no Ten Plagues, no Kolot Ubrakim, no Zroa Netuya Biyat Chazaka. But no, no, as God controls, saves, and redeems the Jewish people in the Sipur Megillah, but hidden. God's name is not explicitly mentioned. Pashat Tzavez pointed out very Orphan is the only Pasha in the Torah, well, the only Pasha from Sefer Shemot on, where Moshe's name is not mentioned. The time that Moshe was born is the only Pasha in which Moshe's name is not mentioned at all. Of course, the Pasha is about Aaron. But Moshe's name is not mentioned. Nonetheless, who is in fact doing everything in the Pasha? Moshe Rabbeinu, the Yatat It's addressing Moshe Rabbeinu, and you should command Aaron to do the following, and then it'll do everything else. The name is not mentioned explicitly. Uh, and the 15 minutes that I've been granted on the Erev Shabbat program on Fridays in KMTT is to talk about the same thing, the hidden, in this case mitzvot, of each pasha v'pasha. So the truly hidden mitzvah of this pasha, aside from the one I mentioned, paying attention to one's tefillin, the other hidden mitzvah is Purim. It's hidden so deeply that even I couldn't find a reference to it, except the reference I just mentioned, the lack of reference, the hiddenness. Pashat Tetzaveh is the hidden Pasha of Moshe Rabbeinu, which tells us to pay attention to hidden things.
In fact, tefillin, as opposed to tzitz, and tzitz, the name was explicit. It's galui. Anyone can see the name of God on the tzitz. The name of God in tefillin is buried, of course, deep inside the box. Nobody can see it. It's closed. By definition, it's closed. And you can't see the Shem Hashem. Only the Shin, but you can't see the Shem Hashem. And by paying attention to it, by keeping your mind on it, you are bringing out what is hidden into the open. Which is what Purim is all about. Purim is about rediscovering God's hidden hand, even when it appears to be completely disguised and covered by the workings of normal human history. Shabbat Shalom, Umar and Efrei and Happy Purim.